Welcome to Highbrow and Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Powell and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this episode, Revenge is a dish best served cinematically, as we look at two films where the lead protagonists get mad and then get even. Steve's choice is The Reckoning, in which Nicol Williamson puts his marriage, career and liberty on the line to find the man who killed his father. Dan's pick is Dirty Weekend, a Michael Winner revenge flick in which Leah Williams goes on a killing spree after waking up one day and deciding that she'd had enough. Stop nursing that grudge, dear listener. Put that petty feud to one side. We are getting serious about revenge, and we take revenge very seriously. Beware spoilers, and enjoy the show. Well, good evening, dear listener. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to another edition of Highbrow Lowbrow. This week, it's all about revenge. Oh, yes. Getting your own back, balancing the scales, bit of one-upmanship. You know the score. Anyway, I'm off to put on my knuckle dusters and have a quiet chat with someone while Steve tells you about his movie. Steve. Thank you, Dan. Yes, uh, Revenge is a Dish, Best Served Cold in The Reckoning, which is a 1970 film directed by Jack Gold and starring in the lead role, Nicole Williamson one of the very great, powerful actors, one of the best actors Britain's ever produced, who is now all but forgotten. And uh, this is part of an attempt by me to uh, resurrect his his reputation. He's a wonderful actor. Anyway, The Reckoning is nominally a revenge story. It's also a drama. It's a film about grief. It's a film about identity. It's, it's a film about uh, changing economic conditions and North-South divide. Nicole Williamson plays Mick Marler. He is a successful businessman who lives in the lovely uh, leafy Surrey town of Virginia Water, travels into London every day. He works for this quite successful company and he's got a fabulous job. But the company is in trouble because this is the late 60s and they're selling adding machines. And oh dear, there's a newfangled invention called the computer, which is eating into their profits. Firms no longer want to buy their adding machines. They want to buy computers, which are becoming more and more miniature and and more advanced. So it's quite an interesting premise from the get-go. It's a competitive business, and Mahler is an angry man. He's arrogant. He's abrasive and not easy to get along with. We see him, the opening scene is him having a flaming row with his wife, which then turns into about a very animalistic lovemaking, quite angry and sexy. And there's people in the company who'd like to see the back of him. So the company's worried that his profits are down, and Marla's boss is a bit of a buffoon, and Marla decides he's going to cover for him. He's got the talent to write a report where he's kind of cooking the books a bit, but he covers for him. But he gets a call and told his father's had a heart attack in Liverpool. He needs to get back there quickly. But his boss insists, no, you've got to finish this report. There's a lot riding on it. So he finishes the report. He's delayed. And by the time he gets back to Liverpool, his hometown, his father has died. And it's quite a, a moving scene. His father's in his deathbed. And then he pulls back the covers and notices that his father's covered in bruises. Really vicious shiners you know, from head to toe. So he talks to a local doctor and it, it seems there's been a, a little cover-up. The doctor has signed the death certificate as being a heart attack, but his father's best friend witnessed this pub argument with a bunch of English yobs who took exception to some Irish wolf tone songs his father was singing and basically beat him to death, triggering the heart attack. 
no one really wants to get the police involved and his father's best friend who's this very kind of lush old aging guy with bad tea food but kind of attractive in a kind of just salt of the earth type of way he's kind of you know streetwise says we don't get the police involved in our family you've got to take care of them yourself the film becomes quite meditative because for everything Marla is he's he's an adulterer he's a, a lying businessman he's ruthless you don't think at first that he's a murderer so we start to ask ourselves is he going to kill this yarp who is not much more than a teenager who murdered his father or committed manslaughter by instigating this very nasty assault that's the basic premise of the plot a lot of the rest of the film is a lot of meditation on things like the north south divide we see beautiful Surrey, where all the lawns are immaculate and modern mock Tudor houses, which are huge. And then we go to Liverpool and 1969, 1970 Liverpool looks remarkably grim. I work in Liverpool, actually, both Dan and I work in Liverpool and I could say that today Liverpool is a thriving, beautiful, um, diverse, multicultural city. Very confident too. And, and to see it as it was is fascinating and also kind of difficult it is so grim i mean obviously there are still some severe pockets of poverty in liverpool and they seem like they've hunted out the worst parts for this particular film although if you know your geography there's one bit where he's walking through liverpool and i swear he goes on the Roncorn bridge which is miles away and then he's back in liverpool again and i guess that's just the magic of movies his job gets increasingly dire. You think there's no way he comes back from it because after a big uh, work shindig that his wife has thrown, his wife's played by the beautiful Anne Bell, an actress who had a few good roles and then went into kind of semi-retirement. He punches out a colleague, a senior colleague, who says something that he takes umbrage at. You think no one could possibly come back from that. He's put on suspension, but you don't think there's a chance in hell he's ever going to come back from that. But he does something interesting in the car, driving between Liverpool and London. He clicks his fingers and it instigates a change in him. He's able to turn situations on their head. The film is a bit languid. It's a bit long. But when it goes back to the revenge element, the way he carries out the revenge is very, very clever and shows him thinking everything through and coming up with a marvellous cover story and swapping cars, getting a kind of false alibi. The, the whole business is quite fascinating. We see him as well, again, switching the situation so that he's on top again at work. He has an affair with a colleague. He also has an affair with a character played by the wonderful Welsh actress, Rachel Roberts, who here has this very kind of earthy uh, sensuality you don't see women like that in films anymore and she's attractive but you know she's not a model she's got this down-to-earth rawness about her that he's very attracted to because he's got you know this trophy wife there's another moving scene when you think that he might actually leave his wife for her but she gives him his address and he goes to where she lives in Liverpool and this is appalling council estate and he sees her with her two children because she's married but he doesn't care about that because part of the film is based on him feeling guilt at like suppressing his Irish roots to become this kind of typical Southern Englishman. And you think he's going to re-embrace that. But then when he sees some of the poverty, he decides, hmm, maybe am I not? Maybe what I've become is what I am, not what I am in my roots. 
So the film was directed by Jack Gold, who did a number of very good television films for the BBC on things like Screen 2, but also a number of good films. Also with Nicole Williamson, The Bofors Gun, which is another great one. Williamson's career at this point, I'm a big Williamson fan. If you listen to the show regularly, you probably know that. He did Waiting for Godot. He was one of the very first actors to do Waiting for Godot. He did a Hamlet that was very well received. It was quite a radical Hamlet. And he was doing films, and they're all a bit stagey. The Bofors Gun, The Reckoning, Laughter in the Dark, directed by Tony Richardson, based on the Nabokov novel, which is a hard one to see, but it is actually really good. It's very cruel, cruel humour, but very good. And Inadmissible Evidence, based on the John Osborne play, which was a role he played on stage five times, it really became synonymous with him. He certainly had the critical plaudits, but he lacked a real commercial hit film until later life when he started doing films like The 7% Solution, where he played Sherlock Holmes, to Ellen Arkin's Sigma Freud. That's a good romp. I mean, he plays Merlin in Excalibur, and that's a pretty good romp, and it's ridiculous, but and he pops up in The Exorcist Free. But his film appearances became less and less. His behavior became more and more erratic. His problems with alcoholism, his two marriages that both ended very messily and he died almost in obscurity he lived in cyprus for a while and he also lived in amsterdam where he died of esophageal uh, cancer and it wasn't reported until some time afterwards he tried his hand at singing and he just grew bored of acting eventually for those of us who uh, really admire him as an actor we're glad that we've got these films as a testimony to him the film is based on a novel called The Heart That Wants by Patrick Hall, and it's quite a literary film. It's not got this pulsing, fast-paced, pounding narrative. It takes its time, and you have to accept it on that level. bit different from other revenge stories. One very interesting comparison, which has brought it back to critical attention, really, is that it, it has many similarities with the film Get Carter, and it actually appeared before Get Carter. So Northern Boy makes good down south in London, becomes your typical Londoner or, or southern businessman, goes back up north for the funeral of a family member who is never that close to, and that's important, just as in Get Carter, we know Michael Caine wasn't close to his dead brother. In fact, he cuckolded him. Finds out that the death was not natural. In fact, it was a murder. And then takes his revenge. And at the same time, by doing it, he is jeopardizing the position he's worked so hard for down south. Because in Get Carter, Michael Caine's bosses in the London underworld say to him, don't go up to Newcastle and make waves. We have business interests there. We don't want you interfering with them. And that leads to his demise. In, in the same way, the longer Marla spends in Liverpool, the more he is jeopardising his position as what today we call a yuppie, but then was a London city gentleman. Some scenes are almost direct parallels. I, I, I think I need to look into this and see whether the, the makers of Get Carter had Get Carter is based on its own novel, so maybe it was a literary comparison. But the most surreal scene in this one, it's also one of my favourite scenes, is Nicole Williamson is talking to his father's friend, and that's when he finds out that all is not what it seems. And they're in this big pub where there is a wrestling match taking place. And again, the, the portrayal of Liverpool with the, you know, the bingo halls, which is still around, and wrestling, which I'm not sure if wrestling is still popular in Liverpool, but it was back then. And there's a brutal wrestling match. You can feel the punches. You can feel the boot in your teeth. It is absolutely brutal. But then there's some sort of fracas and the audience starts fighting. It starts between two audience members. And then suddenly every 
person in the pub, and it must be this big pub's like 100 people, starts fighting. And the two wrestlers stop, look at each other as if to say, what the hell is going on? And then look at the fighting outside. It's kind of surreal, and that's where it kind of goes into kind of satire. It's a little bit similar to a scene in Get Carter, where Carter's in a pub, and he's taking care of business, and there's this very bad, overweight, pasta prime cabaret singer who suddenly gets into a fight, and then the whole pub starts fighting, and Carter just laughs and walks off. The scene is very, very similar. The Reckoning, I think, is a good revenge story. It works on several levels. It is about a man who feels slighted by his father's murder. And that's the correct way of, as bizarre as that seems, as he admits, he hasn't been back to Liverpool in five years. He hasn't seen his father in five years, hasn't spoken to him. And he, he goes there, and there's a very funny scene where the, the local parish priest says to him all the nasty things his father had said about him, like, you know, bad son. You see the world as something just to be consumed. And he actually looks down at his father. He's like, oh, you knew me better than anyone. <laughs> he seems like he takes it as a compliment. It's not the fact that he loves his father that he goes on revenge. It's the fact that someone has killed his father and he takes that as an insult. And there's various references to kind of Sicilian codes of honor, you know, and the mountain bandits and, and that sort of thing. And the characters seem to be locked in this kind of mentality that forces them to do really strange things. The last line of the film, which I won't give away, but is darkly amusing. And Nicole Williamson used to say that in real life after the film, it became his favorite line, his favorite expression, because he, like I said, he was a rabble rouser. It got himself in a lot of trouble and did himself a lot of damage. But he used to say that line. And when you watch the film and you hear the line, it'll probably make you smile wryly. In fact, when the film wrapped, he'd caused a lot of trouble on set, always causing arguments and things like that. The crew gave him as a farewell gift a, a wooden spoon. <laughs> they said, we're giving you this because you like to stir it up. <laughs> and I think that's just brilliant. The Reckoning is a film that will stir you up. It might arouse emotions towards revenge. I'm sure we all, we must admit, we've all felt that urge to commit revenge on someone. Maybe not so dramatically, but we've all wanted at some point to get back at someone who has wronged us, who has bullied us, or has just caused us a great deal of suffering. That's probably why these films are fantasies, because we are mature, law-abiding people, at least I hope most of us are. <laughs> there might be some uh, outright criminals listening to this right now, but I have no idea. But, you know, most of us, we cool off, we get over it, and that's life, because we're civic-minded and we don't see it again. So th these films are really fantasies, because the characters are following this logic where they do do these things. And The Reckoning is just well-directed, well-acted, well-written. It all merges together and upholds quite a lot of conflicting themes. And I think it might be Nicole Williamson's best performance. And I'm conscious of the fact that a lot of people probably haven't heard of him. And I'm recommending this film as a good inroad to his career. If you watch this one first, you might enjoy the other films he did. You might even enjoy the hammy films he did, like Excalibur more, having watched this one. So it's my highbrow choice of the week, The Reckoning. Thank you, Dear Boy, for that. I did enjoy it, although I did feel that it was a cut price Get Carter. So it's interesting that Get Carter came after it and was more successful. Would that be, do you think, because Michael Caine's profile was higher than Nicole Williamson's? Yes, I think it was. Although it's also worth mentioning that Get Carter was a bit of a slow burner. Although now it's considered one of the best British films and definitely best gangster films, it it, it didn't break box office records. Oh. It did it did inspire a black exploitation remake in the States right away, which I haven't seen. I think it's just called Hit or Hitman with an all black cast. 
And there is also the Sylvester Stallone remake, which was never released in Britain because they were worried it would offend too many people, which I haven't seen. Have you seen that one? No, I believe Ken has a cameo in it. And I believe he, well, he, he said he enjoyed it, but I think um, if you're paid enough, you can say anything really, can't you? Sorry, Michael. Yeah. I wouldn't even watch it out of curiosity. I just, when I even read it, they were making it, I thought, and with Sliced Alone, you know, we're remaking a gangster classic with Sliced Alone. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just, let's just let that sit there for a second, you know? But, yeah. but anyway. I think you're right. The late 60s, early 70s, revenge seemed to be in vogue. I don't know where it was about that particular time period. It just seemed like getting back at people was just in vogue. I think it maybe comes, it spins out from the angry young man thing as well. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, because uh, a lot of the characters in this are angry young men, including uh, Nicole Williamson in this. He's, uh, well, maybe not young, middle-aged, shall we say? Well, I don't think he was, he looks middle-aged, but it was a different time then because the actors especially were smoking and drinking so much that they did age fast. And you think Oliver Reed died when he was, what, 60 and Richard Burton was 58 when he died and they looked like they were in the 90s. Uh, so I think Nicole Williamson, I'm just going to look up his age as you, it's a good point. Let's see, he was born in 36, which would have made him 34, 35. And he looked much older. Yeah. I know you're a bit of a techno buff, Dan, so uh, what did you think of the fact that they were selling adding machines? Oh, well, yes, you know, these newfangled computers that will never take off. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And the fact they were calling them adding machines rather than just calculators. That that took me a while to work. Sorry, what is it they're selling? (laughs) I thought maybe the selling point would be that these newfangled machines, they play Pong, whereas uh, these adding machines don't. So, yeah. That could be one selling point for people. My machine, you can play Pong on it, and you're adding, whereas his only can do is add. If we go back in techno history, people who looked at the internet and thought, oh, that'll never take off, and got their fingers burnt because they thought that way. I'm sure quite a few long-running companies have been there at some point. But it was quite amusing. It did show the time of the film where this newfangled thing called a computer, something that we all take for granted now, you know, and if you believe the scaremongers is going to take us all over in the next five years anyway. Oh, yeah, with AI. Oh, dear, honestly. I know this is getting outside the realms of this podcast, but I think we're a long way off from Skynet just yet. Yes, thankfully. I don't have anything to worry about. But I think in the film they first mention, oh, we toyed with the ideas of computers in the late 50s and we rejected it because the investment was too big. Hmm. And when you think about it, what was the name of the scientist who wrote the Enigma Code? Alan Turing. Yeah. I think his breakthrough with computers at the University of Manchester, I think that was the early 50s, wasn't it? So he broke the Enigma Code during the Second World War. He so... did. Then he went to the University of Manchester, and that's when he had made one of the huge breakthroughs in computer technology. It was in 1948 he became reader in the maths department in the Victoria University of Manchester, and then he became deputy director of the Computing Machine Laboratory. During his time in Manchester, he developed the Turing test. You're absolutely right. The imitation game is the paper in which he describes the Turing test. And that's where the film gets its name from. I mean, I just thought it was interesting when they said, when the company's having these meetings, like, why is it all going wrong? And they said, we looked into computer technology in the 50s. I was just kind of floored that companies were already debating it then. But that's when it would have been very new, I suppose, they would have had a certain logic in rejecting it and kind of saying, well, let's wait and see. In the early 70s, I think people are still sending telegrams occasionally and phones were like on the party line. So you pick up the phone and you could, your neighbour could be on the phone or they could listen in on your conversation and all stuff like that. It's, it's remarkable when 
TV was still black and white. My parents were watching black and white TV, yeah. And it wasn't on 24 hours a day either. Maybe that's why they call it the good old days. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> there weren't 200 channels. Black and white telly, four by three, 625 lines, off at midnight with the playing of the national anthem at the end of the yeah. day, Steve. Is that what you'd like? Just three channels as well? Yeah, and the three-day week. And the three-day, oh, wow, yeah. good Lord. <laughs> yeah. I looked up Virginia Water. It's still one of the most exclusive high-end places in the country. So it hasn't really changed much. It's still this very conservative Surrey neighbourhood. But but Liverpool, I think, has changed beyond all recognition. Was it oh, interesting yeah. for you to watch, see Liverpool like that? I've lived here since 2001, so I've seen a few changes. But Liverpool, I know, during the 80s was rather grim, and during this film as well. I think, though, sometimes, like when they were doing dramas about the troubles as well, they I think sometimes they go out of their way to find some really rotten area to make their point, and you think, well, yes, not all of Belfast was like that. I'm sure not all of Liverpool was like that, but certainly, yeah, there was a time when Liverpool at one point was going to be put into managed decline by the government of the day. Yeah. So you can well believe it when you see some of the vintage footage that parts of it look like that. Parts of the North of England did pretty much look like that, and some parts still do. There is still very much a North-South divide in terms of well-being and wealth and a lot of things, really. But Virginia Water is in danger of being just consumed by the ever-expanding London, if I'm honest. I think you can get to Virginia Water by tube now, which is usually kind of a bad sign if you want to try and be independent from London. If you're on the tube line, then um, Virginia Water soon to become a London borough if they're not careful. So you wouldn't have to drive like a maniac to work like he does in this film anymore. No, just... <laughs> no that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I thought Virginia Water, should he just get the tube? Yeah. 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 yeah, he wouldn't be driving like a maniac anyway. He'd be stuck on the M25, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wouldn't be driving anywhere. Yeah. If you want another good film showing Liverpool at the time, and also a bit grim, would be Gumshoe with Albert Finney. Ah, okay. And that was the first film directed by Stephen Frears. It's a bit more lighthearted than this because it's a private eye spoof. Albert Finney's this daydreamer. He's a bingo caller, but he dreams of being a PI. And through, um, and guess what? He gets a PI case. It's quite funny and it's quite light, but some of the shots of Liverpool are just like, oh, gee, miss. They do look a bit grim. Oh, I didn't do a Bond connection in this one. Um, oh, well. Is there, <laughs> okay. is there a Bond connection in this one? There the was. I can't remember the guy's name, though. The highest boss in the adding company plays a role in Octopussy. He's the Fabergé egg expert who goes to the auction house with Bond in Octopussy. Good Lord, Steve. I mean, there's obscure <laughs> and then there's that. Well, he, he came back to mind recently because he died at a ripe old age recently. And Mark Gattis wrote a little tribute to him because I think he'd done a lot of genre stuff and he'd done like Doctor Who in it. Okay, so the actor's Douglas Wilmer. And he played Sherlock Holmes in the 1965 TV series Sherlock Holmes. That's probably why Mark Gattis wrote a tribute to him. But I think he may have taken a cameo in one of the latter-day Sherlock Holmes. And yes, he played Jim Fanning in Octopussy and Moyle, the head of the company in The Reckoning. If you look up Douglas Wilmer, he's got one of those very kind of lugubrious faces that looks like he should be in an episode of Yes, Prime Minister or something. <laughs> right. The other point I wanted to make was the revenge element, the killing of the teenager who killed his father. At one point, I thought it's almost becoming like an afterthought. The film's being diverted by his affairs, and then suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, wasn't I meant to kill someone? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, kind of, oh, yeah, that thing. And then it all seems to be over quite quickly and it's downplayed. But then you know, I suppose the film is more multi-layered than simply that. And the other thing that made me wonder, was this acting or was this real? You know, when his wife throws, is it a perfume bottle at him and it hits him oh. on the temple? And there really isn't a rather realistic thunk. And you think, oh, I don't think they had sugar glass in those days, did they? <laughs> they come across like Burton and Taylor as a married couple. Yeah. They have some really passionate scenes. And I just think that, yeah, I got the impression they weren't holding back. That's what's making those scenes so powerful. So he wasn't <laughs> acting, basically? That was Maybe it. he wasn't <laughs> acting, yeah. But I remember Burt Reynolds saying on a film, City Heat, the first day of shooting was a fight scene and someone was supposed to smash, you know, what they call a breakaway chair. But oops, he picked up the wrong chair and smacked Burt Reynolds with that and really did his jaw in. So uh, these accidents happen. Maybe she picked up the wrong, <laughs> she picked up the wrong ornament uh, accidentally on purpose. Oh, well, never mind. It was a kind of eye-catching scene that certainly the sound as well was like, ooh, that sounded pretty real. Suffering for one's art, I believe it's called. Yeah. My choice of revenge flick is the 1993 film Dirty Weekend, made by Michael Winner, based on the 1991 novel by Helen Safavi, and she co-wrote the screenplay with him. Interestingly, a nice bit of trivia for you. The editor in this film is one Arnold Crust Jr., which, if you know your Michael Winner, is a pseudonym used by him. So Michael Winner effectively co-writes, edits, produces, directs this film. It tells the story of Bella, and it's summed up really in the opening line. One morning, Bella woke up and decided she'd had enough. Bella works in London and is going out with an academic who has an affair with one of his students, which, of course, never happens in academia. Um, And sorry. So she decides to relocate from London to Brighton and start again. She has a friend down there called Marion, who she goes to see and then decides to move down to Brighton. She sets up her own kind of working from home job and things seem to be going well until she starts receiving phone calls from her neighbour who can look into her room from across her yard. And his name is Tim. So he starts out being a voyeur, but then he becomes more and more threatening. He starts stealing clothes from her washing line. He meets her in person. He then makes threats about wanting to buy her acid. And it all really becomes really quite threatening. And he's played very well by Rufus Sewell, who does threatening very well. In sheer desperation, she goes to see an Iranian psychic called Nimrod, who is played with an unfortunate bit of brown face casting by the otherwise excellent Ian Richardson. And Nimrod basically says to her, well, these men are trampling all over you because you're letting them. He mentions his persecution as an Iranian citizen. He describes himself as Persian and how he overcame it. And so he flicks a switch in Bella's mind, and he also gives her a pocket knife, both of ways of how she should deal with her Tim problem, as he's described. As the book says, one day Bella woke up and decided she'd had enough, and she's decided she's had enough, and she goes and kills Tim rather brutally. She gets away with it. So then it gives her certain confidence to deal with other men who would try and put women down. She meets an academic who claims he's a professor, but he's not. Um, academics don't do too well in this movie, I should point out. And he comes to Brother Chris Amend, the three yuppies down from London who are about to do something awful to homeless women. In a way, it is very much like a female death wish, but it's not as simple as that. She discovers that she has the power to dispense justice to men who would oppress her or other women. But a lot of the men in it are either out to get something like the man who sells her a gun, just wants to make money, 
the dentist has nefarious designs on her. The only other man who's sympathetic in this is Nimrod. In fact, Marion's husband, at one point Bella says to him, has he ever had an affair? And Marion says he doesn't have the balls to have an affair. As in the novel, the men are seen as either out to get something or victims. But it's quite interesting that somebody as traditionally, how can we put this masculine as Michael Winner, has kept that element in the film. A lot of the reviews for the book and for the film couldn't get over the fact that it's a woman doing the killing. I'll be blunt, this is a retelling of the Death Wish tale from a female perspective. But it's interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this movie. I'm not going to say to you it's a good movie. It's not. It's latter-day Michael Winner when he was churning out stuff like Bullseye and Parting Shots. It's not a classic. It's shot on a micro-budget. And you can see that by, there's if you go on YouTube, there's footage of behind the scenes from the film program. And he has to recruit somebody who's just arriving at the hotel in which he's filming to to be an extra to just walk over and talk to someone and at one point he recruits Helen Sahavi to be in the background as well so he's really kind of filming on a low budget sometimes the low budget shows and also Brighton isn't quite as scuzzy I'm sure there are parts of it but I mean when you're trying to do a kind of vigilante classic it's on the streets of New York has a certain thing to it on the streets of Brighton doesn't really have the same ring to it but it is showing how Bella gets her own back on men who have wronged her also men who have tried to do bad things to other women. Obviously, it all starts to catch up with her. And she keeps going because she wants to be remembered, she says. She doesn't want to be forgotten. She wants people to know her name. You're never quite sure then, is she mad or is she bad? And that's an interesting thing. Is Michael Winner going to take us down the, oh, she's completely lost her mind? Or is she completely rational in what she's doing? So it's a bit of ambiguity on that, which I think is probably to keep the viewer guessing. You do find yourself cheering for Bella, I have to say. In the same way, for example, people stood up and applauded in the cinema when Death Wish was on and Charles Bronson started um, shooting people. Apparently there were standing ovations in the cinema. I saw this in the cinema and there wasn't a standing ovation <laughs> when she was killing people, but there were certainly cheers from sections of the audience, I'll say that. A lot of the reviews really didn't like the fact that it was a woman doing the killing. That seemed to be the problem for a lot of them. On Helen Sahavi's site, she did then do an article about the criticism. I just want to quote from it. This is on her website. It was published in The Guardian. Interesting that a lot of the criticisms came from women. Nikki Jared and The Observer found it more offensive than pornography. The Independent's Angela Lambert declared it obscene and repellent. Guardian columnist Melanie Phillips wrote an exquisitely balanced review. When I finished with this book, she began, I threw it in the bin. The Sunday Times went even further, prompting Naomi Wolf to write in New Statesman and Society, you know you've stumbled against a taboo when a newspaper publishes a poll of psychiatrists debating if you're mentally ill. Such was the reaction to a novel of female revenge. For there's a status quo in literature, a cultural norm by which the woman is degraded, violated, mutilated and murdered. Dirty Weekend is a discordant book. It says disgusting things. It says the man who wants to mutilate has cut the human bond. It doesn't endorse the cultural norm, nor does it collude in the status quo. It lets the woman live for once, a supremely selfish woman who'd rather be the butcher than the lamb. And that pretty much sums up the tone of the film. And it's to Winner's eternal credit that he hasn't toned down or even beefed up elements of the book. He's pretty much adapted it as it was written. Certainly, Sahavi in interviews seemed quite happy with the adaptation, and she's very supportive of Winner on her website. The reviews from The Scotsman, for example, was one of the most controversial novels of recent years has been turned into a movie by one of Britain's most controversial directors. I wanted to touch on censorship because one of the reviews says Dirty Weekend is arguably the most pornographic film ever to pass the British censor. I wouldn't say it's pornographic. It's certainly like Death Wish before. 
quite violent and it did get censored but whereas now death wish is freely available uncut and is regarded as something of a classic dirty weekend has never seen a blu-ray release the dvd release was cut steve and i had a real problem of a time actually trying to find a way of viewing this and when we did find when steve to his eternal credit did find it it was actually an uncut copy that we saw and the violence in it is certainly no worse than anything in Death Wish or any other movies. And in fact, given the low budget, some of it is actually rather quite tame. It came out at a time when the Video Recordings Act was being tightened up. So what could be shown in the cinema wasn't the same as what could be shown on video. Whereas now, when you look at the censorship notes for it, it would genuinely get passed uncut. It's not the most violent. Well, it is violent in terms of killing, but it's not the most violent in terms of how people are off, I have to say. I know a lot of people might think, oh, Michael Winner, good grief. Well, yes, Michael Winner by this stage was more known as a restaurant critic doing his wonderful column Winner's Dinners. I mean, what else would you call it rather than his movies? But in terms of Latter-day Winner, it is actually one of the better ones. Like I say to you, it's not a classic, but the reason why I chose it was because it is quite interesting that Charles Bronson's classic is available over whereas this one still arises controversy by virtue of the fact that it's a woman doing the killing but as michael winner himself said the idea that the killer in dirty weekend is a woman that's what people find so shocking and so unsettling it upsets their ideas about the place of a woman in society i think this quote says it all you can't only make films about nice people doing nice things steve sorry i've gone on for quite a bit what did you make of it well, I enjoyed it. On a number of levels, I thought Leah Williams was excellent. And looking her up, she's from Birkenhead originally. So it's nice to see a Merseyside actor doing so well. And there were lots of little things, like, for instance, because this is Burton, getting a gun is not so easy. <laughs> and I actually kind of like the detail around the acquisition of the gun. Whereas in America, it'd be like, Oh, yeah, I've got one down the back of the sofa. <laughs> Good cast. I mean, you know, you mentioned The Dentist. The Dentist is played by David McCallum, you know, from The Man From Uncle and many other things. Rufus Sewell, who, who again, is very good, like you say. And his career veered more towards the heartthrob roles. So it's interesting to see him play a real sexual creep. One of the three yuppies at, at the end is played by Christopher Ryan, who, if you like the alternative comedy scene of the 80s, was in things like The Young Ones and Bottom. But I, I don't have any quite love for it, I suppose. I don't understand why people hate it so much, and I think today it wouldn't be as controversial, because actually, I think the idea of a real kick-ass woman taking revenge on men who have wronged her would go down quite well. I think that's almost a feminist statement. It's a little bizarre. You don't know how to take it at times when, for instance, well, I don't know if this was black comedy or not, but it certainly made me squirm in a kind of uncomfortable moment of humour. The man who claims to be an academic is grotesquely obese. And the scene in the room when she turns around and he's stripped himself naked, it's kind of like, oh, right. Um, really not sure how to take that scene. Oh, yeah, the bit but, where he's sla slapping himself and making his flesh ripple. Yeah, yeah, yes. he's not hes not exactly Judge Clooney, is he? No. Um, so that scene kind of goes through you, yeah. And I almost feel pleased when she put him out of his misery. But I liked it. I mean, it, it surprised me. And I, f I think you're right in that. Michael Winner's career started quite interestingly. And I think a lot of people forget that in the 60s, he did some very, kind of very hip anti-establishment comedies, films like I'll Never Forget What's His Name and The Jokers, which still hold up quite well. And I think he was a victim of his own success, or as he once put but its success has gone to my stomach because Death Wish was such a huge hit that he, you know, just made these increasingly rubbish thrillers with Charles Bronson, who never needed a script 
to make a movie and the Death Wish franchise, you know, just became this horribly repetitive. I mean, the, the character had no family left by the end of it. He's, he's like, he's, he's avenging his neighbour or someone. And you're right, ironically, tried to go back to comedy with bullseye and parting shots, but at the end of his career, but he'd completely lost his gift for comedy. So this, to me, is, is Winner's last really good film. I like to think of it actually as the last film because... He did one more film after this, right? Potting shots. I mean, just less said about that, the better. Yes. But you think if someone was to remake it today, did you agree with me that you don't think it would cause controversy? It might even be celebrated. I don't think it would cause controversy in the same way that the remake of Death Wish, the argument by the Death Wish was making had been made. And the remake, I thought, was pointless in a way because I thought that argument has been had. I suppose there's more grounds for a remake of Dirty Weekend because it was so oppressed, shall we say? I'm just reading some of the reviews on it. Mark Kermode, who you think would have torn this apart, actually had something nice to say about it. It says, people who accuse Dirty Weekend of being pornographic are those with no knowledge of the genre. You need to be intelligent to get the most out of it. It's a movie with a message. And how many of those have you seen this year? Nigel Andrews in the Financial Times was quite balanced with, after a short struggle, I gave up and enjoyed this film. It's crude, rude and preposterous, but at least it's lively. And what is life without lurid contrasts between good and bad? There would be grounds for a remake. I don't see why not. Or maybe uh, catch up with Bella, get Leah Williams back and yeah. see if she would, here's where Bella went after this. Because the film ends with Bella moving into London. And after that, you kind of know what she's going to do. But that's when it, the movie just draws the line and says, right, this is where we leave her. She'd have no shortage of reasons in London, I think. Certain certain areas of town, I think she would be in plentiful supply of uh, revenge motives. It's interesting, yeah, because it starts with her defending herself, but towards the end, with the homeless woman, you know, she's defending others. So if anything, she thinks she's actually doing society a service. But I think there had been some cases in, in New York, especially, I think there was a subway shooting where a man shot at a bunch of I think they were African-American kids who were, as kids do, creating a scene. And he said he was inspired by Death Wish. So I can see why some people think these vigilante films are dangerous. But I suppose that's always a danger. If you make a film with a great car chase, some idiot somewhere is going to think you can get behind the wheel of a car and do that. I don't think the film was condoning anything. There's another book from Michael Winner. Dirty Weekend says that if you persecute a group, namely women, for long enough, don't be surprised if they come back at you with all guns blazing. And the same with Death Wish and with any revenge flick, that if you push people hard enough, then sometimes they bite back. But yes, there is a whole argument to be had about the influence of computer games on real-life violence, you know, and that always rears its head from time to time. But I don't think that should stop films like this from being made. There will always be people who will find some justification in something they've seen or heard or read to go out and commit unspeakable acts. But does that mean that movies like this shouldn't be made? No, of course not. So there are still grounds for the revenge flick. Well, even the more recent one, Nobody, which is done in a slightly more comic fashion, especially that bus scene. Have you seen the film Nobody? I did, yeah. Um, you know that you know that bus scene that I'm talking about where the, yeah, the young yeah. guys are saying, what are you doing here, old man? And he just basically says to them, I'm going to bleep you up. Just with, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's just, it's all rather comic, but it's the same idea. You know, this is slightly more comic. He becomes a one man vigilante. So there's still room for the vigilante movie, I think. Well, now it's coming to me because I can't remember the name of the actor. The, the guy who was in Nobody was in Better Call Saul, wasn't he? Um, Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk. But he looks like 
how you and I look. He looks like a normal person. He's not. He did bulk up a bit for the film, didn't he? Yeah. And of course, Leah Williams is a beautiful woman. You wouldn't think she's she doesn't look like a violent person. And even even Charles Bronson, when Death Wish came out, was already fifty, probably pushing sixty. So at first glance, he might not seem like a physically imposing or violent man. And so I suppose part of the delicious kind of comic touch of these is when the villain or the yob or the rapist or whatever realizes he's made a terrible mistake. And then, and then they get the head kicked in like in that bus scene. You know, yeah. that's what makes it so beautiful. Death Sentence as well with Kevin Bacon. That's a good one. Yes, that that for me is a far better remake of Death Wish than the Death Wish remake. There's a bit of humor in it, but it also I think is far more visceral than the Eli Roth remake of Death Wish, which is gory for gore's sake rather than actually trying to do something new with the tale. Yeah, because at the end of Death Sentence, where he's just about to take out the last one, the, the yeah. ringleader, the guy who's just about to get killed, says to him, "You look like one of us." That's interesting that he he has become what he hated. Revenge, it's the oldest. Uh, I mean, we could go back to we could go back further than Shakespeare, couldn't we? We could go back to um, Greek tragedy. We could. Titus Andronicus, yes. Yeah, it was Shakespeare's. Yeah, that was, I think Shakespeare had had a dirty weekend when he wrote that. Blooming heck. <laughs> I, I saw it uh, in Stratford upon Avon on a, a univ- an undergraduate visit. It does not hold back. If you're a serious Shakespeare scholar, I think a, a, lot, a lot of Shakespearean critics hate Titus Andronicus, but I mean, I thought it was pretty good fun. And again, the violence is played for laughs such as the baking of their sons in the pie feeding it to the mother the, the revenge is played for laughs you know oh so it's really it should be classed as a comedy rather than a tragedy then okay yeah yeah, yeah. fair enough the rip-roaring laugh-a-thon that is titus andronicus yeah well thank you dear listener we hope you've enjoyed our analysis of two films about revenge I hope that you seek out these films, that you watch them and hopefully put aside any feelings of enmity you have towards anyone who may have wronged you in your life. And you can enjoy the fantasy of people on screen taking their revenge on individuals around the world. The revenge thriller is a very interesting genre and we are glad to have brought it back to life for you this evening. Thank you and we will see you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.